All right. So, uh, we're in the Old Testament again. I love the Old Testament. Honestly, I used to uh, hate the Old Testament. It frustrated me. I didn't like it. Um, and I'll tell you why in, in, in a little bit. But I'm excited now, and we're starting a series on the life of King David. And with today's message, I want us to become more familiar with um, not just King David, but also more familiar with something that is more foundational, all right? I, I want us to address the question, and I think it's an important question. The question is, why do we study the Old Testament? I mean, that's the Old Testament. We don't need the Old Testament anymore. We have the New Testament. Well, usually, here's what happens, I think. When someone gets interested in Christianity or interested in the Bible, they usually start at the beginning in the Old Testament. They're sailing along through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Leviticus and Leviticus and Leviticus. <laughs> and then you're done. <laughs> right? I mean, you're, you're, you're pumped up. You're going to go through it. And then before you know it, you get confused. You get turned off. You lose interest. And, and here's why I think that is. I think, it's, I think the reason is because most people haven't been taught how to read the Old Testament. So I think it's helpful for us to start with this very basic question. Why in the world should we study the Old Testament? If we are going to see how important the passage is that was read this morning, if we're going to see that it's more than just a, a story that may or may not be interesting, we got to start here with this question. Now, it is, it is very typical, it is very typical to say that we study the Old Testament because the Old Testament teaches us about us. For example... When we see David or Abraham or Moses and we see them fail, then what you do is you look at their lives and we learn about how we can avoid failure, right? And then when we see them succeed, then we learn how we can succeed. Now, that can be true, okay? That can be true. And it often is. But that is not the main reason to study the old Testament. It's not. The main reason we study the Old Testament is primarily to learn about Jesus, okay? The Bible is first and foremost about Jesus, from Genesis all the way through Revelation. If you start with Jesus, when you're reading the scriptures and you start with Jesus, then see what it teaches about you, it's so much richer if you go the other way, if, if, if you go from David straight to you, it's shallow. I mean, it might inspire you for a second. Like, oh, man, look how, what this guy did. Be like him. Or, oh, man, look what that dude did. Don't be like him. And then you get kind of inspired to do good things or not do bad things. But ultimately, it'll leave you crushed. And that's the most pop popular approach to the Old Testament. And it is a destructive message. But if you go from David to Jesus and then to you, that is far more powerful. And I'm telling you this morning, it can radically change your life. 
Now that sounds like quite a claim, right? But just hang in there and you'll see why. Now we see this on the very first Easter. In Luke chapter 24, two disciples are walking, uh, walking home on the road to Emmaus. And these two disciples are in deep despair, right? As far as they know, Jesus, who they were following, is dead. End of story. Game over, right? But then the risen Jesus walks up to them. And he withholds his identity. He makes it so that they don't recognize him. And why does Jesus do that? He does that so that these two disciples will actually hear what he has to say. Jesus walks up to him and says, what are you guys talking about? And the two disciples say, well, we were talking about Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. They crucified him. We had hoped that he would be the one who would redeem us. They saw no connection whatsoever between their redemption, their salvation, and Jesus' death. It didn't compute. It made no sense to them. And so they're in deep despair. Now, how does Jesus cure their despair? Does he say, oh, dudes, no, check it out. Open your eyes. Look, it's me. It's Jesus. I'm alive. You guys, you know, don't be bummed out anymore. No, he doesn't do that. That would give them some immediate joy maybe, but it wouldn't give them what Jesus knew that they really needed. So what's Jesus do? Jesus cracks open the Old Testament. But he doesn't just give them kind of a, a general overview of the Old Testament and, and what it's about. They knew their Old Testament. What he does is he gives them a very specific interpretive lens for the Old Testament. Luke tells us this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures, the Old Testament, concerning himself. You know, after they part ways, these two disciples are talking to each other about their conversation with Jesus, and they said, were not our hearts burning within us as he opened the scriptures to us? You know what this means? For you, this means that to the extent that you read the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, to the extent you read the Old Testament and see Jesus on every page, your hearts will ignite on fire with hope and joy and the power of God. That's powerful. Now maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, I know there are these Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. I hear them all the time at Christmas time. But listen, there is so much more to it than the prophecies. Jesus is saying to the two disciples and to us that the entire Bible, including the Old Testament, is all about him. For example, the law is about Jesus. The Old Testament says, here are the rules, do them if you want to live and be blessed. Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Let me ask you, who is this man who never walked in the counsel of the wicked? Who is this man who always delights in the law of the Lord? We know it's Jesus and Jesus alone, right? Jesus has the Lord's blessing and therefore 
all who are in him, all who trust in him. The law is all about Jesus. And then secondly, all the Old Testament ceremonies are about Jesus. The priestly garments, the sacrifices, the ceremonial washings. Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the priest. He is the showbread in the tabernacle. He is the light stand and the temple. All the ceremonies are about Jesus. And then all the history, and what a rich history we have in the scriptures. All of the history is about Jesus. Every great story points to him. Every hero, every prophet, every priest, every king points to Jesus. Jonah, Moses, David, Joshua, they're all about Jesus. Now, there are two ways to read the scripture. The Christ-centered way and the moralistic way. The moralistic way is by far the most popular in churches all over the place. It looks at the story of David and Goliath and says that the main moral, the main point of the story is the bigger they are, the harder they fall. If you try hard, you can overcome the giants in your life. Now, there is some truth to that, but it, it just falls short of the power of God. And, and then you look at, you try to figure out the moral of this story, and, and you think, well, maybe, maybe the moral is uh, don't judge a book by its cover or whatever, right? Those things can be true, but it's not primarily what it's about. And often it is treated as what's primarily uh, primarily what it's about. So we either read the, the Bible primarily to learn what God has done in Jesus, or you read it primarily to figure out what you got to do. That eventually crushes you because you will realize that you fail all the time. Or you will live in denial of your failure and be self-righteous. So there's no power in that. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they knew their Old Testament. They knew their scriptures, forwards and backwards, but they never read it with the gospel lens that Jesus gives them. So if you have never read the Bible with this lens to look, uh, read the Old Testament and to look for, for Jesus, then you've never really read the Bible. Okay, enough theory, all right? We're going to go ahead and we're going to look at the story. We'll unpack it a bit, and we're going to ask two questions. And the first question that we're going to ask about this passage is, what do we learn about Jesus? And the second question is, what do we learn about us? All right? And the story begins, um, Samuel is weeping. And the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Now, why in the world is, is Samuel weeping here? He's weeping because Saul has been rejected by the Lord as king. See, the, uh, King Saul was more interested in wealth and power than providing justice for the oppressed. He was ruling just like all of the other imperialistic violent rulers. God and Samuel wanted a king after God's own heart. Back at, at the beginning of this book, we meet a wonderful woman named Hannah. 
She's barren and she has been for years and she asks God for a son and God gives her a son, Samuel, this prophet Samuel. And Hannah's response is a powerful prayer. And in that prayer, Hannah gets a vision of a king that has a heart like God's. And this was before there ever was a king in in Israel. Hannah has a vision of a king who raises up the poor from the dust, who lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and, and, and inherit a seat of honor. And then she ends this prayer by saying, the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Do you know what the Hebrew word is for his anointed? It's Messiah. Do you know what the Greek word is for his anointed? It's Christ. Now, there, there, there never was a king when Hannah prayed this, but she gets a vision of a king who humbles himself to lift the poor, who leads by serving who attracts our allegiance by, by loving us, for, by living for us and dying for us, a king after God's own heart. Now, Samuel must have gotten this vision from his mom. And, and when he anointed, when Samuel anointed Saul, he thought that Saul was the guy. He thought Saul was the one. Was he? Nope. So, this just crushes Samuel and he weeps because it means that there there is no king that has a heart like God's to fulfill this this glorious uh, vision. And so he longs for this kind of king and it seems like all of his hopes have been crushed. But God says, it is time to stop weeping. I am sending you to anoint a different king, my chosen one. And he says this, Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. On a side note, what I like about this, especially that last part there, it's what God doesn't say. God doesn't say, hey, Samuel, stop being such a wuss. Little crybaby, scaredy cat, wimp. Just go and do what I tell you to do. He doesn't say that. He is a personal God, a practical God. And when Samuel raises this concern, God gives him a practical way to handle it. He loves his children. So Samuel goes to consecrate Jesse and his sons. Now, Jesse knows that Samuel's going to come to his place and, and he's going to anoint one of his sons as the new king. Do you know how dangerous that is for Jesse? Because what's Saul going to do when, when, if he finds out about this? But he sends his seven of his sons before Samuel anyway, and he sends the oldest first. And Samuel sees how tall and regal his oldest son looks and he says surely this is the lord's anointed samuel is making the same mistake again right when he first saw saul 
He says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Why? Chapter 9 uh, says Saul was tall and strong. He was a head and shoulders above the rest, plus he was super rich. He came from a rich family, and Saul was exactly what the people were looking for in a king. He is the one that's going to make everything right. And God commands Samuel, go ahead. Give the people the king that they want. And God lets his people make a horrible, horrible mistake. And now Samuel is repeating this mistake. Even the prophet hasn't gotten the point yet. He takes one look at this guy and says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. You know what? We all do this too, don't we? I mean, it's, it's a cultural value. Snap judgment based on, on appearance and potential, right? That, that's why our culture pours countless dollars into our appearance. That's why we pin our hopes and dreams and security on, on politicians. And God says, Samuel, when are you going to learn? Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so Jesse has seven of his sons, seven sons, pass before Samuel. And Samuel says, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Are these all the sons you have? I can imagine his wife thinking, what do you mean? Are these all the sons I have? I've been giving birth like over a decade, like nonstop. And Jesse says, there is still the youngest. Now, Jesse makes the same mistake as Samuel. I mean, he knows Samuel is going to anoint one of his sons as king, but he doesn't think that he's going to, so he doesn't even think that he's going to, to let me start over. <laughs> Too much Red Bull this morning, I think. <laughs> he knows that Samuel is going to anoint one of his sons as king, but he doesn't even think to bring his youngest son. And so Jesse says, oh yeah, little baby boy. I mean, he's out busy doing chores. And Samuel says, well, go get him. Bring him here. And when David shows up, Samuel anoints him, and he becomes the king. So there's the story. And the most important question we can ask when we read a story from the Old Testament like that is what? So what do we learn about Jesus? Right? David, we start with the assumption that David points to Jesus. He points to the Messiah. He points to the Christ, the Lord's anointed. He points to the true king. And there are three things that we learn about Jesus. First, if you're taking notes, the Lord's anointed is God's choice, not the world's. Like David, Jesus is easily overlooked. The scriptures tell us that his appearance was not impressive at all, right? The world says, Jesus of Nazareth, he's, he's not rich. He's not powerful. He's, he's not popular. He can't be the Messiah. The world doesn't get it 
because it looks at outward appearance. Now, impressive Saul, I mean, he was the people's choice. And God tells Samuel, all right, give my people the king they want. Saul was their guy. He was rich. He was tall. He was powerful. He was impressive. I mean, this, this guy, it's, it's a no-brainer. He's got to be the guy. He's exactly what the world is looking for, and he was the people's choice. But he wasn't God's choice. From the world's perspective, Jesus is too ordinary. From the world's perspective, Jesus doesn't grab your, your attention. Even when you look closer at him, I mean, he seems weak. But from God's perspective, he is invincible. Second, the Lord's anointed is called to serve through suffering. You know what? The Lord's anointed always suffers. David, you know, he was anointed as a kid while Saul was still on the throne. And, and when Saul was anointed, I mean, he immediately became the king. But David had to wait and wait and wait he had to wait for years and years to take the throne. And repeatedly, Saul, the king, tried to have him killed, right? So David was constantly on, on the run, fleeing from Saul, living in caves. But David was matured through his suffering. David suffered first and then entered his glory. And this points us to Jesus Christ. He was misunderstood, he was rejected and persecuted, he was arrested, beaten, and nailed to the cross. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus said they crucified him, but we had hoped he would redeem us. And Jesus said to them, you have been reading the Bible all wrong. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then third, the Lord's anointed is given God's promise and presence. In anointing David, God is promising David, hey David, you will be king eventually, right? Be patient, wait, don't lose heart. In the meantime, in the midst of your suffering, you need to know that I am with you. I am with you. And we're told that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David in power from that day on. In the same way, Jesus is given God's promise and presence. So we read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. And then we can ask our second question. What do we learn about us? Okay. Well, the Apostle Paul, this is interesting. The Apostle Paul says that all Christians are anointed ones. He says this in uh, 2 Corinthians it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts. So through faith in Jesus, in Christ, you are the Lord's anointed. And the same things are true about you. That means, first of all, that you are God's choice and not the world's. Okay. Why are the Lord's anointed not the world's choice? 
It's because the Lord's anointed are given a message. And that message is salvation is of the Lord. We are not saved through our own strength. We are not saved through our own might. We are not saved by our self-effort. We are not saved by our religious performance. Salvation is of the Lord because there is no other way. Even David's heart was sinful. I mean, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then to cover it up, he lied and had her husband killed. The point is, even David needed a Savior. Even David needed a Messiah. And that's the message, that salvation is of the Lord. Not your might, not your strength. And you know what difference this will make in your heart? What difference this will make in your life? To the extent that you understand, that you see, that you believe that salvation is of the Lord, you will look at other people in a whole new way. A completely different way, a way that's completely different from the rest of the world. You won't judge on outer appearance. You will not be impressed at all with the rich and famous. And you won't despise the poor and the weak. In fact, you will be drawn to the poor. You will be drawn to the weak because you realize that in the Lord's eyes, you are poor and weak. And then you realize that your king became poor and weak for you. It just creates a humility in you and totally changes the way that you look at other people. Second, you ready? You are called to serve through suffering. You are called to serve through suffering. We all want a free pass on suffering. We all hope for a free pass on suffering. Nobody gets a free pass. As the Lord's anointed in Christ, you are called to serve through suffering. Just as Jesus suffered and then entered his glory, those who follow him will suffer first and then enter glory. So if you're exploring Christianity, let me just be straight up with you. Don't think being a Christian will make your life easier. It won't. It does bring great blessing and beyond anything you could ever imagine, but it doesn't make your life easier. But also realize that God doesn't waste suffering. He doesn't waste suffering. Like Jesus, our suffering is redemptive. Not that our suffering saves us from the penalty of sin, but God uses suffering to save us from the power of sin in our life. It is through our hurts, it is through our struggles, it is through our problems that wisdom comes to us. And you are redeemed from the power of sin and then you can minister to others. Jesus suffered for the good of others. Therefore, we will suffer for the good of others. Ultimately, pointing people to Jesus. And then finally, we are given God's promise and presence. You know what? God's great promise is his presence. 
There's nothing better than that. God says to you, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And in the midst of the suffering, I will be with you every step of the way. And maybe some of you are going through just brutal times right now. And you wonder, you know what? How can I know? How can I know that God is with me? How can I know that God hasn't forsaken me? How can I know that he's not punishing me? That's what a lot of people think. Well, you remember when I said Jesus was given God's presence? Well, that needs to be qualified a bit because there was a time when God's presence left Jesus. There was a time when the Father left the Son. And on the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why was Jesus forsaken? He was forsaken so that you never will be. Jesus took the curse so that you would get the blessing. Life with God forever. So do you, do you see how, how Hannah's vision has been fulfilled? I mean, there really is a king with God's own heart. A king who humbles himself to lift up the poor and needy, who loves us so much that he laid his life down for us. And the whole Bible is about this king. And the more that you see that it's all about him, the more you will see how important it is for you. The more you see Jesus especially in the Old Testament, the more your heart will ignite on fire with the hope, joy, and power of God, and you will glorify God with your life as the Lord's anointed. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you that you are faithful to us even when we are not faithful to you. God, we thank you that, that when we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, um, as we study the Old Testament, that you would give us eyes to see Jesus, to understand more fully who he is and what he's done for us. And God, I, I pray for our church. I pray that, that you would enable all of us to look to you as our, our king, our Messiah, our deliverer, that you would help us all to see our desperate need for you and that, that you would ignite our hearts on fire with love, joy, and the power of God. I pray that, that you would snap us out of any, any apathy, snap us out of uh, going through uh, the motions. God, may your kindness lead us to, to repentance. See our need for you, the forgiveness that we have in, in you because Jesus paid the penalty of our sin. He absorbed the wrath of God so that we wouldn't and so that we would be blessed with your presence. And, and God, I just pray that, that, that you would forgive us for thinking that we, 
needs something else besides that to be okay, to be happy. Help us to find our greatest joy in you and to know in greater ways that you are with us every step of the way. God, fill our our hearts with a burning desire to worship you and glorify you with abandon. God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that has not put their faith and trust in you, that, that you would enable them to do that, that you would give them the gift of faith, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would give them the courage to follow you, see their need for you. God, for the, for the rest of us, I pray um, that you would uh, prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper that we would all take advantage of this time to, to confess our sin and rest in the grace that we have in you and the truth of the gospel. We pray these things in your name.